Welcome to Episode 4 of Our Seven Neighbors, a new seven-episode podcast brought to you by the Interreligious Institute at Chicago Theological Seminary. We hope you've been listening and enjoying so far. This podcast will bring you a story, an interview, and a conversation that will hopefully teach us, inspire us, and activate us to be better neighbors, no matter your religious or non-religious perspective. My name is Kim Schultz, and I'm your host. Thanks so much for listening. We're so glad to have you here. This episode is titled Female While Muslim, Exploring and Smashing Gender and Sex Stereotypes and Expectations in the Muslim Community. This episode might surprise you. It surprised me. Guests include Samir Qureshi and Nadia Mohajir, two amazing women from an amazing organization in D.C., appropriately called Heart for Women and Girls. And Sadia Yaqub, professor of religion at Williams College, joins CTS's own Rabbi Dr. Rachel Mikvah for a conversation towards the end of the episode. So let's get started. Samira has been working with Heart Women and Girls since 2012 to facilitate sexual health education initiatives within Muslim communities across Canada. She was brave and generous enough to share her personal story with us here. Here's Samira. Well, hello, my name is Samira Qureshi, and I would say I identify as a Muslim who is super passionate about sexual health. I think it goes back to when I was younger and growing up in a religious family, as many people do, Muslim or not, I didn't think I had a lot of access to sexual health education. I think my parents were not given the support they needed or the information to really teach me what I felt like I needed later on in life. As I reflected back, I was a victim of child sexual abuse at a very young age and did not understand at the time what had happened. And it actually took me until my late 20s when I started working in the field to understand what those memories really were. And so as I reflected back, it's been almost 10 years since then, I started realizing that my parents were very well intentioned and wanted to teach me what they thought I needed to know, but just didn't have the resources to do it. And I think being Muslim amplified that because a lot of religious communities are worried about whether information will potentially be detrimental to children, if it will open up things that they're not ready for. Whereas in speaking with my mom, especially now, I hear from her, you know, I just didn't have the language and tools to teach you. And I did what my mom taught me. And so that's really fueled me to want to work in the field and to try and give parents and other Muslims, those who identify as Muslims, the resources and tools that they need to have these conversations with their families. I think it's fairly common among Muslim communities and families. And when I say Muslim, you know, there's a range of how people identify as Muslim. And of course, the range of how Muslims practice. When I've spoken to friends, families, and in the work that I do, there's this common thread of people wanting to, and then there being fear about it. People wanting to, and there being shame, which can be really harmful, of course. Shame is not something positive. And then people wanting to talk about sexual health, but not knowing how. And a lot of people have 
told me that it's really hard for them to put the topic of sexual health into words to be able to speak about it. To move past fear or shame, it takes the ability to talk about what is making them scared or feeling ashamed. And so it's been a lot of times with me in conversations. So I'll open up about my own experiences, lacking sex ed as a child, and telling them some of the fears my parents had. And all of a sudden, the people don't feel alone anymore. They realize that they're not the only ones facing what they're facing or feeling what they are. And the more that I talk about how sexual health can be discussed, so I use really practical terms and show them what it can sound like, I see them gaining more comfort and I see their eyes kind of lighting up. And a lot of people have told me, oh, this isn't as difficult as I thought. And so making it realistic for them and making it practical and empathizing with them has been shown to be really helpful. As a Muslim doing this work, a lot of people will assume that they're not able to be reconciled together. It's that you're either or and it's one or the other. And one of the things that's kept me balanced with this is that as a Muslim, it's your obligation to learn about all parts of yourself, including the sexual health sides of you. And so saying that to other Muslims I have gotten the feedback. It's the first time they've heard it put that way, that it's actually your spiritual obligation to take care of yourself mentally, physically, spiritually, and sexually. And I believe that me saying that as a person who is a practicing Muslim doing this work and having this passion breaks down a lot of the barriers to understanding the relationship between the two. And that's been really helpful I think in living Islam and living being a Muslim and not just it being this ideological thing that gets excluded in the realm of sexual health, for example. I sometimes don't identify as a victim of child sexual abuse because it's no longer something that is a daily challenge for me. And it's become so integrated into why I do the work I do. That's my purpose is if I can help individuals become empowered, have language, feel whole, bring this in as part of their spirituality, I feel like that's my purpose. Later, I was lucky enough to spend some time speaking with Nadia Mahuchir. Nadia is the founder and executive director at Heart and gave us a lot of insight into her work around sexual health and sexual assault in Muslim communities. Nadia, thank you so much for joining us. So happy to talk with you today. Thank you so much, Kim, for having me today. So tell us about HEART. Yeah, so HEART is a national nonprofit, and we're working to promote sexual health literacy and sexual violence prevention in Muslim communities. And so we have a national team of five staff and 22 trainers across the country. And we have ongoing programming in Los Angeles, Chicago, and the greater Washington, D.C. area. But we also travel to other communities when we're invited to present our work there. So we founded HEART out of a need that we recognized in the communities that we were living in. You know, that the current sex ed and anti-sexual assault programs and services were kind of missing the mark and not reaching many communities because of their one-size-fits-all approach. And similar efforts were either limited or non-existent in religious communities. Hmm. So, you know, we really were working to sort of merge best practices in public health education with faith, values, and tradition, and really honor both of them 
to be able to have, you know, sexual health and sexual violence prevention education in Muslim communities in the way that allowed them to feel seen, to be heard, to be represented, and also in a way that considered their worldview and their context. How do you balance that? How do you balance the faith aspect or the belief aspect with with the reality of, of everyday life? I think it's important to really have a sound understanding of what is, for example, like truly faith tradition versus what is a function of either culture or patriarchy or colonization or other sort of systems that kind of interact with faith traditions and often kind of color the faith traditions, right? And so I think it's really important for us to separate the two and really have a sound understanding of of what the faith traditions may be saying about, you know, sexual violence or sexual health or sex versus what patriarchal cultural baggage may tell us about how we should be thinking about sex and sexual violence. That's great. What stereotypes could you break for us here today? Oh my God, so many. So one in particular that you hear often, particularly about Muslim women, is that they are inherently oppressed. They're supposed to be submissive. So not just in general, in their way of being, but also sexually. They are oppressed sexually. They should be submissive sexually. They should just give in to whatever their partners want from them. And they're kind of just at their will. That is more a function of patriarchy and and other cultural beliefs than it is a function of Islam. In fact, women and wives in general have a lot of rights, sexual and otherwise, in their marriages. Husband and wife are seen as equal partners in a marriage. And so that's one stereotype. Another stereotype is that on Muslim men, that Muslim men are inherently aggressive and violent and that their faith tradition actually compels them to be as such. And again, that is also a function of media messaging and Islamophobia that has painted Muslim men to be that, right? And those Muslim men who may be accused of certain crimes or guilty of certain crimes, again, we can't blame the faith for it. We have to blame ideas about toxic masculinity and, you know, other patriarchal culture that sort of perpetuates that violence and not necessarily the faith. Yes. Do you get any pushback from the Muslim community about some of this work? Oh, all the time. There's often a discomfort around talking about sex or sexual violence. You know, a lot of times folks sort of not only are uncomfortable with it, but also feel like maybe it's misaligned with Islamic tradition. Maybe it's un-Islamic to talk about these topics. And a way that we try to sort of address that is really showing in history and also using textual evidence like from the Quran and other um, historical texts about how it is, in fact, not un-Islamic to talk about these issues. And that, uh, once again, that shame and stigma is actually rooted in cultural manifestations of, you know, patriarchy and colonization and not necessarily the faith itself. So we'll use examples from like, you know, the prophet's time and, you know, the women that were in his company and the way that they used to sort of talk very openly about sex, the way that they used to ask questions without shame about their bodies and about sex and the way that more sensitive issues around sexual violence or gender-based violence were also treated. So we'll try to like sort of find that evidence from the history and sort of 
counter the pushback by saying we shouldn't be uncomfortable talking about these issues because this is a lived reality of all Muslims. Muslims have sex. Muslims experience sexual violence. And so it's important for our communities to have access to accurate information and know how to get help and know how to help others. That's great. And what's interesting to me is there is a misunderstanding from the outside, and then there's also perhaps a misunderstanding from the inside. Absolutely. I think that's a a great observation that you have, uh, because especially as as an organization that is led by Muslim women of color, we're actually hit by all the angles that you can imagine. So, you know, internally within Muslim communities, as you mentioned, we continue to get so much pushback because of the stigma that these issues have associated with it. We've earned our share of critics, and those critics are not only loud, but they actively try to discredit and dismantle our work. And then Mm -hmm. externally, with rising Islamophobia and xenophobia, you know, Muslims are becoming even more hesitant to seek mainstream services. They might not want to rely on law enforcement or the criminal justice system for some of these experiences of violence that they may have. But ironically, what that results in is that they essentially are rendered invisible in an era where they're hyper-visible. Because Muslims are not reaching out for help in the same way that their white peers may be, it seems like Muslim survivors and their needs don't exist, right? And So there's an erasure of it because people are afraid of, women in particular are afraid of coming forward. Exactly. And then consequently, that is reflected in the way that funding and policy priorities are sort of set. Why do you think that there is, there's been such an erasure of sexual health for Muslim women or sex? I mean, that can be answered in so many different ways. I feel like that's a really important question to look at, like philosophically and like anthropologically and stuff. But I do think it has a lot to do with patriarchy and it has a lot to do with colonization, right? Like a lot of our puritanical views on virginity and sexual purity come from colonization and the way that a lot of Christian communities historically have looked at you know, virginity and and sexual purity and things like that. You know, I think even if you just look at the prophetic tradition of how easy it was for a divorced woman or a widowed woman or anybody with previous sexual experience to be married, if you look at that in the prophetic times and you look at it now, it's very disturbing to see that those challenges exist now in 2020 when they didn't back in the time of the prophet, peace be upon him, right? So the prophet and many of his companions, they did not hesitate marrying women with previous sexual experience. It was not something that was even remotely considered to be make you unmarriageable, right? And so I think a lot of it does have to do with the powers that be that want to sort of preserve certain systems of power and privilege. And as we know, there's a lot of privilege in being a male, in being a cisgender male as well. And so I think it's really important to sort of understand that it's all about preserving the systems of power and privilege. And that is very intimately tied with how we talk about sex and if we even talk about sex. 
And then also uh, one of the things that our organization really does is we have a lot of partnerships with some of the leading female scholars in the Muslim community. And so it's really important for us to also uplift their work, which a lot of their work is uh, sort of uncovering the gender equitable interpretations of the faith tradition. And that often, like making folks aware that these alternative interpretations exist is sometimes so empowering for them to actually feel like they have options. That's powerful. I'm so excited that you are doing the work you're doing. I think it's so crucial for so many reasons. We both actually work in with the narratives and storytelling. I'm just wondering how, in your opinion, can we change narratives, both culturally and personally for you, perhaps, around these issues? How do those things shift on a larger scale? You know, that answer is also complex in a lot of ways. Like, I think it's important to think about changing the narrative and understanding that it will have to be done in baby steps. And that can be really frustrating for folks, right? Because it's like, even when people commit to telling the truth and commit to storytelling and, you know, commit to challenging harmful narratives, it sometimes can get demoralizing and frustrating when nothing happens, right? And like people are still behaving the same way and their attitudes are the same way. And it seems like you're screaming at a wall, right? And so that can be really frustrating. So I think it's important to think about changing the narrative from a systemic lens and from a lens of thinking about decades and, you know, more than decades, rather than thinking about it as like in one year, And it's also important to recognize a small win. So if you do change the mind of one person, you know, it's important to recognize that win. But I think it's also really crucial to continue to engage in, you know, compassionate truth telling and challenging harmful narratives as a way to achieve equity and freedom, empowering people to reclaim their own truth. It's not only life-changing for themselves, for their own individual lives, but it can actually also trigger a movement, right? And it could also like mobilize folks around that storytelling and want to inspire them to tell their own. And that's when you can see entire culture shifts being created. Chicago Theological Seminary professor Rabbi Dr. Rachel Mikvah had a chance to speak with scholar and professor of religion at Boston's Williams College, Sadia Yaqub, after they both listened to Samira and Nadia, just like you. It was an insightful and delightful conversation. Apologies on the rhyme. Let's jump in. Hi, I'm Rachel Mikvah, and I'm delighted that Sadia Yaqub is here to talk with us on Our Seven Neighbors. Welcome, Sadia. Thank you so much for having me, Rachel. So we listen to Samira and Nadia, and they both talk about resources within the tradition that can be reclaimed to shape a positive attitude to sexual health. And they're not specific very often, but there certainly are prophetic traditions, ahadith, that recognize the value of foreplay, that recognize and respect women's sexual desires, and more. Do you do you want to expand on some of that? Sure. I mean, yeah, there's definitely a lot of things within the Muslim tradition that 
one can sort of mine the archive to find ways in which the Islamic tradition, particularly the Quran, the prophetic traditions, but also the the intellectual tradition that followed from from those two sources is very affirming of women's sexual desire as well as their sexual experiences. One of the things that always strikes me is that the Islamic medical tradition, even though it builds a lot from the Aristotelian tradition, it seems that the Islamic medical tradition did believe that uh, women's orgasm was necessary for reproduction to happen in, in order for conception to happen. And so That's what that cool. meant is, that, yeah, and so what that meant is that you know, all of a sudden, women deriving pleasure from sex becomes important, right? If you right. <laughs> if you tie that to reproduction, then women, uh, you know, whether they're enjoying sex or not becomes important. And so, you know, there's a lot of different aspects of that tradition that can be used and is used. Uh, and, and Heart Women and Girls, as you were mentioning, uh, has done some really brilliant work of, you know, mining the archive and in very creative ways using those sources to speak to the Muslim community about the importance of sexual health, about the importance of women being affirmed in their sexuality and in their sexual desire, and the importance of safe and fulfilling sexual experiences. So there are a lot of interesting similarities with mm-hmm. Jew- rabbinic Jewish tradition, right, in the affirmation of women's sexual desires and the, the right. responsibility of husbands to be attentive right. to that. At the same time, that is patriarchal, right, that this is the husband's responsibility to satisfy the wife. He's got more control in the family. And that's also heteronormative in its right. assumptions as well. But nonetheless, does suggest a kind of a capacity both within patriarchy and within religious thought and within religious jurisprudence to talk frankly about and healthfully about sex in a way that's been impinged, right? So without romanticizing the pre-modern period of any culture as if it was totally egalitarian, we can certainly see how the colonial project is one of the influences in the development of religious nervousness about right. sex and sexuality. Yeah, I mean that and that's very much true for the Muslim tradition as well. I mean there there is so much uh, historical work now that's been done that you know, gets at precisely this point that what we see of a lot of pre-modern Muslim societies is that there was a lot of sexual and gender diversity in those societies. And it blows my students' minds when I show them that both rabbinic tradition and early Islamic tradition recognize that gender is not binary. Exactly. I mean, I love, you know, some of this work that is looking at the ways in which ideas about the gender binary really become very firmly established because of colonialism and the early modernization projects, right? This kind of, the binaries, both of the heterosexuality and homosexuality, as well as the male and the female. And that really kills a lot of this, you know, sexually diverse and, and gender diverse aspects of those cultures. I also am very gratified by the important work that Hart is doing, along with a number of other voices and organizations recognizing and recovering from within the Muslim tradition. So many things that can contribute to both women's empowerment and to sexual health in general for everyone. I've also seen in your work an effort to historically contextualize the development of Islamic law, to not only distinguish between fiqh and sharia, but to also you know, sort of recognize and embrace the idea that 
change is a constant. It's part of a dynamic and multivocal Islamic tradition. And it's really possible to reimagine law that would continue to evolve and take into account the values of the current context without being un-Islamic. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I think for me, one of the things that I've been really trying to think about is how do we think about there's such an impulse and a desire that, you know, I very much also identify with for Muslim communities to hold on to the tradition and to uphold the tradition. And obviously, a lot of this comes from a relationship of of love and connection to that tradition. Some of it also comes from the colonial experience that very much tied acceptance of Muslims with distance to their tradition. So you see these kinds of pontifications that happen even now about why it is that Islam holds Muslims back from modernizing, right? The assumption being that somehow the more distant Muslims are from adherence to Islam, the more acceptable they can be in society as it is now. Right, right exactly. The, the good Muslim, bad Muslim <laughs> binary. And of course, you know, what that does is produces this, you know, this effect of wanting to hold on to this thing that you are being told that you must let go of. And I don't want to reduce everything to a kind of anti-imperialist uh, sentiment, because I think there is a lot of love and reverence for that tradition that also brings people to this desire to keep it alive and to and to enact it. But for me, part of what I try to think about in my work is, is how can we think about adherence to the tradition that moves beyond upholding formalistic legal rulings? You know, especially because the law, just as it is for Jewish communities, a law is such a central part of what it means to be Muslim and what it means to live as a Muslim. And so a lot of these things often center around law. So for me, the question is, how do we think about adherence to tradition as moving beyond formalistic legal rulings to thinking about adherence to tradition as carrying on this intellectual project of our ancestors, right? This is a, a very longstanding tradition. It's constantly changing and evolving as people are thinking with these texts and thinking with scripture as well as their current context to constantly produce and reproduce the legal tradition. So how can we think about adherence to the tradition as part of continuing that project rather than holding on to particular legal rulings? Right. To be able to separate that out from that which is inherently valued right. in the tradition and to say, you know, we could imagine a way of distilling praxis within the community that moves away from patriarchy and hierarchy as its foundational right, structures. Absolutely. So going back to Hart for a moment, one of the ways in which I think it's such courageous work, and this dynamic exists in the Jewish community too, as a minority in this country that is sometimes discriminated against, the idea of doing our own communal repair in public is fraught, right? People are afraid of the dirty laundry in public and that it will be used by people who are out to hurt the community as a weapon. How do you think about that kind of work inside the Muslim community, say, and how do you make room for it? How do you cultivate the courage within the community to do this work publicly? Because it really can't be done quietly. It needs sunlight right. in order to really have the oxygen to do the communal work of self-repair. How do you help make space for that kind of work? Yeah, that's such an important question and one that is 
always such a pressing issue for communities that are constantly targeted and, uh, and especially, you know, the Muslim community globally, as well as the American Muslim community that has been, had such a disproportionate spotlight on it. Every aspect of who we are is constantly under surveillance. And there's so much Islamophobic rhetoric and violence that is often justified in the name of, you know, defending Muslim women or, you know, protecting Muslim women and so on and so forth. Obviously, none of those are actually interested in doing any of that, but they become very convenient ways, propaganda and rhetoric through which targeting of Muslims is often justified. Because for me, you know, as a scholar, a lot of my work is done in the classroom or in the research that I do. I often find myself fairly removed from Muslim communities. So I'm, you know, very inspired and in awe of the work that a lot of Uh, Muslim women have been doing who are engaging with the community. They're engaging with the imams and the Muslim chaplains, people who are religious leaders in the community to try and affect some of this change. One of the things that I have seen is that oftentimes women do so much of that work to create the change, and there is so much resistance to them and to what it is that they are saying. And at some point, that idea becomes more acceptable. And you start to see, you know, the religious leaders, community leaders and preachers start to then articulate those ideas. Be responsive. responsive. And part of what frustrates me is that then those individuals come to be seen as the people who are mobilizing change. When in fact, there has been so much work that has been done by the women before you even get to that point, right? Yes, that dynamic gets reproduced on the broad communal level. Although I think at least in Chicago, well, first of all, I want to echo, I mean, the vast majority of students, of Muslim students who come through Chicago Theological Seminary to do communal leadership work, not necessarily, I mean, obviously not as imam, but in other ways of making change have been women. A large part of our Muslim graduates have been women looking to do nonprofit and other kind of work to help to help the community thrive in in new yeah. ways. The one other thing I was going to say is also, I think one of the most important things about being in conversation with communities is the fact that you have to speak the language of those communities. And, you know, what comes to mind is Heart Women and Girls had this these infographs that they put out, this was a while back, talking about the importance of consent in sexual relationships. And they use this language of fard, which uh, is a legal technical language. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it, it means an obligation, something that is obligatory on you. But of course, it also can be used colloquially in the sense of just an obligation that somebody has, a moral and religious obligation. And they, you know, talked about consent as being an obligation on an individual in order to to have sex in a way that is nurturing and affirming and creates that kind of loving relationship that the Quran and the prophetic tradition talk about, especially within a heterosexual marriage. Generally, those, you know, those sources tend to talk about it within the context of a heterosexual marriage. And I thought it was, it's so brilliant. It's precisely doing that it work is. of it's the language of the community. So Nadia, I think maybe Nadia and Samira both talk about stereotypes certainly a significant factor in being female while Muslim. And she mentions this stereotype of, you know, all Muslim women are oppressed. Now, first of all, we have the problem that whenever you assume that any kind of analysis applies to everybody inside a category, we have an analytical 
fault, right? But it does make me think, of course, that it's evocative of the ways in which politics are frequently scripted on women's bodies, uh, religious and not, but hijab has become politicized. And I think that people with anti-Muslim bias see it. They try to use this as this somehow a, a mark of oppression of women. Whenever I'm teaching, I, I always try to connect for students the ways in which the discussions around Muslim women and this valuation of Islam as being oppressive or empowering or, you know, dangerous or not dangerous, that the assessment of Islam as being either one of those based on Muslim women, which then essentially puts Muslim women, you know, at the center of this debate and makes their bodies part of some kind of, you know, civilizational battle, right? That, that this is no different right. than what happens with women in general, in any given context. I mean, I could pick up for you any kind exactly. of conversation, right, where this kind of racialized conversation is happening. And, you know, women often are put into the center of it, right? And so I think oftentimes, you know, it's hard for people to see the broader kind of dynamics of gender dynamics of how a conversation is working out because they think it's particularized to Islam. One of the exercises that I do often in my classes, particularly when we're talking about Islam and gender, is, you know, I bring the long list of statistics about America and how unsafe women are in America. The racialized aspects of that, you know, the sexual violence that women have to endure. And then I pose them this question. So, you know, are American women oppressed? Right. And of course, then the conversation becomes, well, how do we make that valuation? How, you know, the, like it depends. And, you know, we have to look at the nuances of this and that and so on and so forth. And I'm like, yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> you know, so there is political right, work I, that that argument about Muslim women being oppressed is, is doing. Now let's talk about what political work that argument is doing. Right, exactly. Well, thank you so much, Sadia, for coming and speaking with us today on Our Seven Neighbors. It's been such a treat to speak with you. It's always, I always learn so much and really enjoy getting to think about these ideas with you. Thank you so much again, Rachel. I really appreciate it. It was wonderful chatting with you. And so the work continues. Thank you again for joining our conversation and meeting some of your neighbors. Special thanks to Samira, Nadia, and Sadia. Find out more about HEART at heartwomenandgirls.org and more about us at Chicago Theological at ctschicago.edu. Check out our iTunes page, Facebook page, and our website at our7neighbors.com. We'd love to have you help the amazing work all of our guests are doing. Do you have a comment, thought, or question, or story of your own? Call us. We may play your comment or answer your question on future episodes. Let's be in conversation together. The number to call is 773-896-2529. Or you can leave us a note on our Facebook page at the Interreligious Institute. We really look forward to hearing from you. Join us for another story, interview, and conversation with your seven neighbors. Talk soon.